Now Joshua was old and stricken in years. And the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. This is the land that remaineth, all the borders of the Philistines and all of Gershai, from Sihor, which is before Egypt, even unto the borders of Ekron, northward, which is counted to the Canaanite. <clears throat> Five lords of the Philistines, the Gazathites, the Asothites, and Escalonites, and the Gittites, and the Ekronites, also the Ivites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Merah, that is beside the Sidonians, unto Apek, to the borders of the Amorites, and the land of the Giplites, and all Lebanon towards the sun rising, from Belgat under Mount Hermon <coughs> unto the entering of Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon unto Mithroth Maim, and all the Sidonians, them will I drive out before the children of Israel. Only divide thou it by lot unto the Israelites for inheritance, as I have commanded thee. Now therefore divide this land for inheritance unto the nine tribes and a half tribe of Manasseh, which whom the Reubenites and the Gatites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond Jordan eastward, even as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then we go to verse 13. Nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Gertzites, nor the Makathites, but the Gertzites and the Makathites dwelt among the children, among the Israelites until this day. Only unto the tribe of Levi gave he none inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said unto them. And Moses gave unto the tribe of the children of the Reuben inheritance according to their families. And then to verse 32. These are the country, countries which Moses did distribute for the inheritance in the plains of Moab, on the other side of Jordan, by Jericho eastward. But unto the tribe of Levi, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he said unto them. Chapter 14. And these are the counties which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed for an inheritance to them. By lot was their inheritance, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and for the half-tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of two and a half tribes on the other side of Jordan, but unto the Levites he gave none inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Therefore they, therefore, they gave no part unto the Levites in that land save cities to dwell in, with their suburbs, for their cattle, and for their substance. As for the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the, the son of Jephanet, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea, 
Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trotted shall be thine inheritance, thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, ever since the Lord spoke his word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet am I as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war both to go out and to come in. Now therefore give me these mountains whereof the Lord spoke in that day. For thou hearest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him, and gave Caleb the son of Jephunneh Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenazite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Harba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims, and the land had rest from war. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come again before thy throne of grace, Lord. We ask you to uh, speak to us through your word, Father, certain sections are perhaps a little harder to read and to understand, and would you give me wisdom and us wisdom collectively to see what you might have to say to us. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. So we are once again continuing our study in the book of Joshua. The last time we looked at that great summary of lists of all the kings and places that Joshua had been and had conquered and defeated. As I said earlier, in these following chapters, um, especially from 15 onwards to about 1920, we'll see all these divisions amongst these tribes and who gets what. We have seen a great, the great entrance of Israel into the land and the great conquering of it, and now we come into a new section of this book. And it's kind of a, a tuck, 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 Geog- sorry, <laughs> geography lesson, and uh, when it comes to all these land allocations. So in the next f- sermons, I'll not be going every chapter, but I'll be picking some of the highlights from it and see how the process went and see what we can learn from it. Now make sure, if you see all these uh, allocations and this geography, that you, to the original hearers, and to those readers that read the book a hundred or so, 50 years afterwards, it was extremely meaningful. It was like the deed of a real estate, a legal document. If there was any disputes or difficulties, they could go there and say, no, no, here's where it says, here is, this city is ours, this is not yours. As you know, when 
wills are made out, often you've got legal disputes, and this time they could go back to the word and settle the matter. So how it was divided was very meaningful to them. Some of the lessons that are in it for us is meaningful for us as we are engrafted into Israel and are now the Israel of God. Keep also in mind that the Israelites had always gone back to Gilgal, the place where they landed. So with all their battles they had, they would go back to that spot. And it would have been extremely exciting for them as well. After all these years wandering in the desert, 40 years, and um, now finally, after all this war, they finally could see and taste of the land flowing with milk and honey that was promised to Abraham. And you can imagine that every family was getting excited as well. They would finally enter into those cities and those villages that they had emptied out, and they would be taken residence there. The ladies would be eager to hang up the curtains and pick out the carpet. The fellows would be eager to finally grow their own crop and to practice the trade that they like. Perhaps you know what it is. If you come from a holiday, even a few days, you're happy to be in your own bed and in your own home. Well, these folks had traveled for a very long time. So keep that in mind. Notice, first of all, in that beginning chapter 13, we are made aware of Joshua's age. The writer said he was getting old, and the Lord also told him, hey, you're, you're getting old and stricken in years. Most think that he was about 100 years old at this time, so he was aged. He had been a faithful general and a warrior since the days of Moses. He had been appointed after the death of Moses to conquer and to lead the people. He'd been a man full of faith and full of vigor. And the Lord had encouraged him not to fear, but to follow him, to trust in him, to believe in him. And with that in mind, he would always go to the battles. And so we see that faith and works went hand in hand. So but but all that done, now we see Joshua nearing the end of his life. And we see that type of language as people getting older before. We see that with Abraham and Moses and with Jacob. And signifies there is a change coming for Israel and for these people themselves. They all got old and feeble. And the Lord tells them that as they approach them the end of their life and that there is a change coming. Joshua is no longer the, the commander in chief, as it were, leading the armies, but he was now in charge of dividing the land amongst the people. And they, each of them, would be doing the fighting themselves in their own territories to, to get rid of the bits and pieces uh, and sections where the enemy was still left. And now his job is to exhort the people to do so. The long war and the journeys had taken a toll on Joshua. He is now feebler than 40 years ago, as we all are, as our body grows old and things take longer to, to do. Ecclesiastes 12 talks about the eventuality of death. Ecclesiastes 12 or 6, it says, Or ever the silver cord be loosened, or the golden bowl be broken, 
or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. But you see, there was still a role left for Joshua at his old age, and an important one. God did not put him into retirement, but he assigned him a different role. In our day and age, we're constantly bombarded with retirement or to stop work early so we can enjoy the last remaining years of our life with ease, with pleasure, and with enjoyment. You probably have seen those stickers says, you know, spending my kids' inheritance. And it's sad, isn't it? And as Christians, we can easily fall into that type of thinking and living. I remember a sermon from John Piper where he bemoaned this fact and he recalls a story of, he says, many believers retire early and then they die at a golf course after 30 years being there, having been little of use to the body and to God's kingdom. And it's good for us, you're getting up there, to think of that now, to plan now for it, and tell yourself now in your younger years that your service to God is the rest of your life, whatever forms it takes in your later years, the years where the sun is setting. And still to be found faithful, to be learning, to be encouraging, teaching the young Generous with your goods and means as the Lord enables you. And also, if you're young here, remember those that are elderly amongst us. They served us. They encouraged the church. Often it's a very lonely section in life. People visit less. They're sick and their strength falls. So to remember the elderly. It also shows by the Lord addressing to Joshua here that the work of the Lord goes on and that it will go on after Joshua as well. The Lord is not dependent on one person, but he goes on with his grand plan. And we also see in verse 1, and that might puzzle us a little bit, that there is still much land to be possessed. Earlier we read in the earlier chapters that there was peace from war, And that Joshua had basically conquered everything. So what what does this mean then? Well, Joshua and all his exploits and battles had gotten the heart of the land in all directions as we saw. Nevertheless, the land described from verse 2 to 6 are on the borders of Israel's land. The mainland was mostly taken, although not total, but you could say it was subtotal was taken. Keep also in mind, as they battled, they would also always go back to Gilgal, and it would leave a vacuum in some of these places taken year one or two, and some of these people that had fled had returned. Israel had slain many areas, but they did leave that vacuum as they still went back to Gilgal. And there was yet much to be done. And how true is that when it comes to much to be done in our Christian life? Yes, we are the child of God by faith in Christ. We have full forgiveness. We are blood-bought. No one will ever pluck us from the hands of our blessed Redeemer. And in a way, we're already seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. 
tremendous victory has been won. We're set free from the bondage of sin. We're indwelt by his spirit and we have that union with Christ. Yet if we look honestly at our lives, there's also much to be done. Personally, sin has to be rooted out. There is, as it were, Philistines and Canaanites, giants to be slain, wrong habits to be withdrawn from, to be avoided. Our mind still needs to be transformed, to be renewed. Bad thinking needs to be thought, transformed, and renewed. What are those areas in your life? What sin is so that is it that so easily besets you and me? What areas do we give Satan a foothold? Are we preemptively working on a battle plan? We have divine help. We have his word. We have the Holy Spirit. Are we seriously looking and examining ourselves? Not just at a Sunday of the Lord's Supper, but throughout the weeks and days. Look again at the repeated promise that Joshua had received himself many times that he now gives to the children of Israel, verse 6, that the Lord would drive these remaining enemies out. The writer is saying that the God of your great general, your great leader, must be your God and your redeemer, if they only trusted and obeyed him. The Lord would not leave them now, They had gotten this far into the land. He would not leave them alone in fighting. But every victory, he would go with them. He does not start a work that he doesn't finish. He is the beginning and the ending of their salvation and ours. Now in chapter 13, we see that general outlay of the two and a half tribes on the east side of Jordan. We looked at the history last time, so I'll not go into it again But only one thing. Originally, these tribes were supposed to be on this side of the Jordan. But as we said last time, they saw that nice farmland and figured, well, we want to stay here. And and Moses allowed it, provided they would help with the war effort. Yet, it left them without natural borders. They would be more easily invaded. Pagan nations would have easier influence on them, and it would turn out to be that way. Turned out in Reuben's case, the tribe, and they never amounted to much. They had internal struggles. They were the first ones to be plucked up and carried off into Babylon. Gad had much harassment from its neighbors. So my point is, had they not been, they had not been content to go with everybody, to stick with the plan, to stick with the original plan, and to wait and see what they would get. They wanted a peace there and now. And even though God allowed it, there were certain consequences. And what wisdom we need as we navigate our own life. What discernment do we need when we make decisions that might seem to make sense? You know, they said, well, it looks good in here. Let's stick around here. But they were fleshly. They were for the here and now. They didn't consider the long-term effects on their own lives and later in the, the life of the generations to come. The Apostle James writes that we need to ask for wisdom because we often are so short-sighted and unwise. 
and let us often do so. And James also says that the Lord will give it to us. Verse 8 to 13, we see the general outlay of this Transjordan area. And then in verse 13, we see a bit of a, a dangerous sign, an ominous note. And it says, Nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Gersizites nor the Makatites, but they dwelled amongst them until this day, which was, this was written many years later. So, clearly, some of them were never expelled. Some of them had never followed the command of the Lord and the law of Moses to do so. Despite all the promises they had been given, despite the marvelous victories they have had, they allowed these pagans to live, to continue their practice, their horrible religion, and their abuse in the sight of Israel. And later in the book of Judges, it will be shown how terrible that was. And not only did they let them live, but their children would go marry them, and so on. It brought a lot of problems. It shows again that for years, yes, they had been victorious under the close eye of Joshua, but left to themselves, they began to slide a bit. And we'll see that more in the chapters to come. As a whole, as a United Nations, they did very well. But once on their own, things started to go downhill a bit. It may not have been affected them very much at first. Perhaps there was barely a connection with these pagans. Live and let live may have been their motto. May it be there was excuses that seemed valid and go like, well, there's a field now. We better go seed it. There's grapes to be picked. Why should I go to war? All kinds of excuses. But eventually the partial obedience comes back to bite them and us and followed by many years of grief. Delayed obedience and partial obedience is disobedience. And of course, the people of Israel tasted that many times. And the rest of this chapter tells us about the geographical locations of Gad, Manasseh, and Reuben. And we are reminded of some of the former battles that we looked at, King of Saigon and Big Og. Again, this would be much encouragement for Israel. This is a recipe for faith, that it looked for the steadfastness of what the Lord had done. They would rehearse and revel in the acts of God in the past. Looking back causes us to see the goodness of God, how he keeps his promises, how he is the supreme ruler, especially looking back in seasons when all seems to fail, when the bottom, bottom falls out of our life, when big things happen and our life seems to fall apart. When we would cry with David, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Or why do the pagans prosper and the righteous suffer? Look back then at his word, his promises, his everlasting gospel. And twice in this chapter, and in the next chapter as well, made note of that the Levites did not get inheritance like the other tribes. And we'll get to their particular inheritance in chapter 21. They did get some cities to dwell in. They were not vagabonds, as it were, but they did not get pieces of land like the other ones did. Verse 14 and 33. 
Only unto the tribe of Levi he gave none inheritance. The sacrifice of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said unto them. But unto the tribe of Levi, verse 33, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he said unto them. They had been called to a special service in the tabernacle, and they lived of that. And about a fifth of the income would go to them to sustain them, as written in the law. In verse 33 there, we all have that portion. The Lord is our inheritance. And that for every believer, that is the case. In the priesthood of believers, Peter writes about that the Lord is our portion. The other tribes, of course, were thankful for the physical blessing and a certain portion of the land, but it was not the end. <clears throat> In the end, all they really needed was the Lord and the Lord himself. And if that didn't happen, their lives would be a failure and a mess. They didn't need the things the Lord gives, as good as they are, but they needed the Lord himself. In a way, the Levites did have the best inheritance, and they had that nearness to the Lord. The Levite would experience closely as he worked in the tabernacle, as he saw year after year close up those feasts, the high priest, the animals slaughtered, the Passover lamb, and they would be reminded of the future Messiah to come. And every blood-bought believer can say with the Levite in Psalm 142.4, I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Chapter 14, it starts to deal with the land allotment for the rest of the tribes of Israel. But it first deals with an individual land grant to Caleb. It's interesting to note that in this dividing of the land among these, the rest of the tribes, it starts out with Caleb and it ends with Joshua. Kind of a bookends. The two old spies are bookends in the land allocation section. We see in verse 1 that it was not only Joshua was involved, but also Eliezer, the high priest who had uh, succeeded Aaron, and the heads of each tribe from these nine and a half tribes, and that their land was given out by lot. And we see that this act of division, and we'll get more to that in the following chapters, is a, a spiritual uh, undertaking. The, the priest was there. Lots were cast. We're not precisely told how that went, but it was a process where God was trusted in. The casting of lots was fairly common in the Old Testament, and it ended in the New Testament with the election of uh, uh, the replacement for Judas after he had committed suicide. It seems to have disappeared with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But a third of the amount of uses we see here in the book of Joshua, and it was what Moses had commanded Joshua and the leaders to do so. So here again we see that obedience that Joshua had to Moses and to the law of God. What had he been told originally? 
Only be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not to the right or to the left, that thou mayest prosper wheresoever thou goest. So he even did not waver from a small, seemingly insignificant portion. Joshua could have said, well, I think I'll trust my own insight and knowledge of each of these tribes and decide who gets what. But he did not. He followed the law. He had learned and seen that deviation from the law brought misery. Ralph Davis writes, No command of God is ever trivial, and therefore all obedience is necessary and significant. Proverbs 16, 33, The lot is cast into the lap, <clears throat> but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Joshua, Eliezer the priest, knew that there was no such thing as luck or fate. And by doing it this way, they wholly followed the Lord. And there was no human involvement. No one could ever charge these leaders with favoritism or bribery, perhaps. It was the lot that decided it. And we also see no grumbling at this point or complaining who gets in who gets what. That God had given it was enough, as it should be for us as we consider our station in life. And in this chapter, we also see the reabursance of Caleb. Last time, we saw him about 45 years ago in Numbers 13 and 14. He does not come here to, to, jo uh, to Joshua on his own accord, but Moses already had picked him for this job and the others, and you can read that in Numbers 34, 17 to 29. It means that seven years before Moses did this, he was confident that Caleb and the others would live to see the day that the land got divided. Caleb's name means wholehearted or devotion, the idea of being single-minded. And the meaning was true to his name back 45 years ago and again as we see him here in chapter 14. We have referred here and there to the account of the spies that Moses sent out before from this book. <clears throat> and what should have been a simple spying trip turned out to be 40 years of death and misery for many of the children of Israel. It happened about one year after the exodus. They were loosed from the tyranny of Egypt. They had seen the miracles all along the way. Fresh manna every day and water. Battles were won and they had seen the unbelievable power of God when the law was given. Yet, ten of the spies, you know the story, came back and all that they saw was the giants, the walled cities, the large number of people and the different types of enemies that occupied the land. It was all impossible. It was all gloom and doom. It was the heart of these ten spies that came out, wasn't it? They were unbelievers. Words of unbelief and defeat. <clears throat> they spoke as though they had never seen a miracle of God. They spoke as though there was no God. And in turn, they infected the whole nations. 
showing their hearts as well. But there was two notable exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. It was Joshua that first stilled the crowd that was courageous to begin with. They were ready to kill Moses and Aaron. And he spoke first, and later Joshua. And he went against the majority, against the popular belief, popular wisdom, even at his own risk, uh, at risk of his own life. And in Numbers 13, he says, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the man that went up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. He dared to stay, to stand with the few against many. He was not easily swayed by someone else's negative, unbelieving report. We see that he did not seek the approval of others, but he feared God and not men. Not men only in his own country, but in, his, in, in enemies as well. He did not assume that the majority is always right. His fellow spies kind of walked by sight, and he had walked by faith. And he believed the promise that Abraham had received concerning the land. They looked at the situation in a mere human view. And Caleb had the Lord of the promise in mind. And he dared also to have his own conviction and to stand by them. When others were discouraging, he sought to encourage. And now all these years later, Caleb, he's 85, he comes to Joshua with other members of the tribe of Judah. And it seems like that Caleb can't wait to get to the point of his visit. He recalls what happened all those years ago. Of course, Joshua remembers him, his old friend. They stood by one another with Moses, and they tried to reason with the rest of the Israelites and told them about the faithfulness of God. And they are now, 45 years later, the oldest men in Israel that last ones of their generations. Three times in this chapter, verse 8, 9, and 14, it is said that he wholly and that he fully followed the Lord God of Israel. Caleb said this about himself, yes, but also the Lord said this about him back in Numbers 14, 24. The Lord said, But my servant Caleb, because he hath another spirit with him, he had followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherein he went, and his seed shall possess it. The Spirit of God was in Caleb. That's why he could say twice in just chapter verse 8 and 9, my God. It was his God. It was personal. <clears throat> and back in verse 7, he could say that he spoke from the heart then, and that he spoke from the heart now. His heart was full of faith and love to God. And we see throughout this passage, Caleb reminds Joshua of that land that the Lord, through Moses, had promised him all those years ago. That word of promise had kept him going. That good news, that gospel, as it were, 
kept him going all these years. He claims the promise that was made to him, as true faith does. He anchors his request not in something he made up, but in the word of God promised to him. And now he comes out to Joshua with it. He does not place his feeling, his faith in feelings or the size of his faith, but simply places it in God, what he had said and what God had promised him personally. That's a great example of biblical faith. Think of how patient he was. For 40 years, wandering the desert, he saw all his generation die. It's a long time. And then he had to fight all these wars. Nevertheless, he persisted. And he trusted in his God. Notice too, in verse 10 and 11, that he is not a man that accredits this to himself. And he knows it. It is God that kept him alive all these years. He knew well the fountains and the source of life, and he remembers it with thankfulness. All through those wilderness years and all through those years of war, God kept him. And not only that, but as he said, he is still strong and healthy as he was in the days of Moses. God had supernaturally probably given him that strength and that health. And since God has given him that strength, he knows that he can still fight those battles. Verse 11, as yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so even my strength is now. For war, both to go in and to come out. Again, he's ready to fight. God has given him vigor and he is using it to obey the commandments holy for his God while he can now look at what requests he makes for a piece of land in verse 12 would it be a nice piece of property by the ocean perhaps or by one of the valleys we read last time or by the springs that were all over the place would he sit out his days there uh, with ease and comfort well, he doesn't, and in it, he again shows his great faith. His work is not quite finished. He asked for that property in the mountains where they first saw those giants and those amazing walled cities that caused the fellow spies to melt with fear. The past victories <clears throat> with the Lord gives him boldness and a ready heart and a ready sword. And he says at the end of verse 12, If so be, the Lord will be with me. Then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. Yes, the Lord has given him strength as a 40-year-old, but that still didn't make him boastful or self-reliant. And we see that humbleness and that strong faith mixed together here. If so be, that the Lord be with me. Not that he doubted, but he had a proper reverence for God. God was not his errant boy, as one writer puts it. He is free and sovereign to do as he pleases. But because of the promise, he is confident and not arrogant. 
And a proper faith will always keep that tension, isn't it? He says only if the God wills, I by faith will do this. Once again, he would set his eyes on those giants, trusting that the Lord would help him. Forty-five years ago, ten of those twelve had set their eyes on those giant, giants, but not on God, in whose eyes every problem, large or small, is not difficult. Fear had said, you can never beat him. Faith says, God can and will. Self-reliance would not beat the giant Goliath when David came up against him. David said to him, Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. So so Caleb once again places himself into a situation where his faith will be tested, it will be tried, and where God once again would show himself to be true to his word and give him strength. Hebron is also the location where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are buried. So it's a special meaning. It's a special place. It is the, the place where God has promised Abraham the promised land. Where God gave Abraham the gospel, as it were, of that he would be the owner of a vast land and his offspring. So without hesitation, Joshua grants him the land. And we will see in the next chapter how that battle goes. Joshua gives him what God had promised him. Caleb had believed what God had said and came for what was his. Give me this mountain, he said. Give me this place. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 speak about a much greater inheritance that is reserved for every believer. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy have begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that faded not away, reserved in heaven for you. Canaan would have its problems. It was corruptible. It would be defiled but it pointed to a greater inheritance. We will all leave this earth one day. <clears throat> Do you have this great inheritance? Do you have this blessed hope? Are you sure of heaven once this short life is over? God in Christ has given us a promise that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We have to believe as Caleb did in that promise. John three fourteen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have the promise of God who cannot lie, Titus 1, that if by faith we look to Christ on him, We have an eternal inheritance. Just as Caleb received his inheritance from Joshua, so are Joshua, the Lord Jesus. Make sure that those who believe in him 
will be in glory. I am the door. By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray as we live on this earth, Lord, with all our concerns and our worries, all our business, our schooling, our families, and Lord, that we would always keep a great eye on our inheritance. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who promised us and every believer that he would prepare a place for us. Father, we pray that you would give us that faith. Father, if we need to be weaned more from this world, would you do so, whatever that would look like? Lord, that we would have an eye to eternity and in the world to come. Father, we thank you for that great Redeemer, our Joshua. Lord, who gave up for a season his close fellowship with the Father came down, Lord, and dwelt among us. Thank you for that humiliation. Thank you for his suffering on the cross. Lord, we speak about it often. We'll remember it later in the Lord's Supper. Help it, Lord, that it would never be something that is common to us. May we always be surprised by it and grow in love by it as well. We thank for you for all your goodness. In his great name we pray. Amen.